Lord, we are so grateful for the blessings that you give us, for the financial peace that we have, Lord, the things that you bless us with each and every day. And it's a blessing for us to give back. It's a blessing for us to help support these various uh, ministries. And Lord, we pray that through this offering that we're able to reach lives, we are to able to bring your word to those that need hope, that need peace, that need love and understanding. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Wendy. But I mean, I, my nose started running. I got emotional thinking about how good Jesus is. And um, we're going to continue our series uh, on Advent um, just to kind of catch you up on uh, what we're studying. We're looking at, um, at Scripture as a whole, as, a, as an entirety, looking at how God used everyday people like you and I to bring about his plan of redemption, redeeming the world back to himself. And the theme that we've looked at is these um, uh, continuing uh, recurrences of miraculous births or unlikely births. Last week, Jeff talked about the birth of Isaac, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And through Isaac came Jacob and an entire nation of Israel and through Israel, the Messiah, Jesus. And so um, this week, we're looking at another miraculous Birth, actually the birth of a prophet by the name of Samuel. Now, Samuel is um, unusual in that he was the last of the Old Testament judges um, for its period of time. God had raised up judges to uh, help people stay within the Mosaic law. But he was also one of the first uh, Old Testament prophets. And if you just as a history lesson, if you remember, prophets were people who represented God to people. They spoke and prophets said, thus saith the Lord. They were the mouthpiece of God. Priests were a little bit different. And Samuel actually was a was also a priest. But priests represent people to God. They help people become ritually prepared to encounter God. But Samuel is a key figure in that he was the person that God raised up to go and anoint the first king of Israel, Saul, 
who turned out to be a guy that was very selfish and insecure and had a number of problems and God took him out of the way. But then Samuel was the guy who went to the house of Jesse and anointed King David. And we all know the Bible stories of King David. As a little boy, he grew up and stayed throughout even his younger days, loyal to King Saul. But eventually through David, through the lineage of David, we bring about the Messiah. The point of the entire book that you're holding in your hands is Jesus. Everything that you see, every story that seems so ordinary, point to Christ. And so what we're going to do today is look at the events that surround the birth of Samuel. The birth of Samuel and the birth of Jesus have their own similarities. Both came from moms who were going through great difficulty. There's enough pain in this world to go around. I mean, I, I can feel that uh, in, the, in the mindset this morning. We already had someone say, hey, this has been a rough week. Everybody's going through some type of struggle. The thing about pain is, is that it can be so distracting. You're into it so closely that you can't see the hand of God. It's impossible to see it. You're so intensely managing and dealing with the moment at hand, the voice and the truth that you remember and you know to the depths of your heart can't seem to come up and do anything for you. Pain has a way of distracting us. A city looks different from Google Earth than it does at the street level. New York City seems pretty calm from up here, but when you're on the street, you've got some skin in the game, right? There's some things that has to be dealt with. What we're going to look at today is the circumstances surrounding the birth of Samuel. Now, in order to understand the passage that we're looking at, we've got to go back just a little bit into the chapter beforehand. So what I want to do, I'm going to read we're going, to, we're going to read the passage that we're going to study. It's actually a prayer of the mother of Samuel. It's more than just a prayer. It's probably more an anthem or a, uh, a proclamation of, of Hannah. That's the name of, of Samuel's mom. But in order to understand the, the source or the pain that, that, that generated her proclamation of who God is, we got to look back at chapter one. And I'll cover that in just a minute. But let's get to the passage because we're going to look at some principles that Hannah proclaimed that she used to overcome the pain and difficulty when she was at the depth of despair. Hannah shows us the way. Very similar to the birth of Jesus when Mary's uh, uh, prayer in, in, in Luke chapter 1 verse 46. Both of these women were going through great difficulty. She very uh, likely, just like Mary, was dealing with uh, cultural and social um, pressure um, and uh, very likely was, was dealing with the stigma of things that were surrounding the birth of her child. Mary was dealing with the stigma of being uh, pregnant without being married. She had to deal with the whispers and the pain of cultural influence and what others were thinking. She had to deal with the possibility of being an outcast and, and not being part of the community. Uh, Hannah was the same way because she was not able to have children. 
Hannah, in that culture, in that culture, for whatever reason, it was seen that that if you were not able to have children, that somehow that you were uh, um, cursed by God or you didn't have God's favor. And so Hannah was part of that same difficulty and pain um, that that Mary was going through. So what I want to do is read the passage. We're going to look back at at, uh, the chapter right before that. And then we'll um, we'll open up um, the principles that Hannah used to work through this. So if if you have your Bible, turn to um, 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. If you would with me, please stand in honor of reading God's word. This is Hannah's prayer. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. But those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has had many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit the seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. In verse 11, then Elkanah went home to Ramah. The boy and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I ask first and foremost that uh, you be honored in what um, I say, God, I'm asking you personally to keep emotion from my voice. God, that I would not be a distraction. Father, I'm asking you to send forth your words, not my words, but your words. God, let me bring your message, not preach a sermon. Father, I come to you and you know everything about me. You know my shortcomings. You know my weaknesses. You know every person here and what they've gone through. I'm asking for your supernatural spirit. We don't need to know more about you. We need to know you. Father, we are weary of religion. We are weary. We want to see you, Father. We want to see you exalted. We want to see your name on high. Father, we want to be driven to develop your character. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Life's inevitable pain is battled by continually recentering our minds on the trustworthiness and power of God. Let me give you the cliff notes of what brought Hannah to this spot. 
The cliff notes of 1 Samuel chapter 1 can be summed up in two words. Dumpster fire. Alright? This is a mess. This is the worst family situation any reality TV show could have come up with. We have backbiting drama, uh, fussing, fighting, and I don't know what that team is. Is that me or somebody else? I think it's on a phone somewhere. I think I Well, somebody wants you. <laughs> you want me to answer it? I mean, I'm good with it. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's not a distraction. I, I, do, I can do this in a hurricane. I'm good. I'm at NBC. We're not at some place. I'm so embarrassed, y'all. Right? <laughs> Thank you. Tell the process that. I just leaned over to Ed. I was All like, right. Yeah, it's okay. So where were we? Okay, dumpster fire. That's where we were. All right, so in, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, here's the situation. Very quickly, there are three people. There's a guy named Elkanah and Hannah, his wife, and a, a lady by the name of Penina, his second wife. All right? So right off the bat, you know it's like drama, okay? So, so, so we have these three people. And, and, and very likely, Scripture is not clear with this, but very likely, Hannah is um, the first wife of this guy, Elkanah. So very likely, what, what we have here is that, so this guy, Elkanah, marries Hannah, the wife of his youth. She's not able to have children. And so um, in that culture, it was, it was deemed okay to have a second wife. And so he married this lady named Penina. Penina is able to have children, and she has a bunch of them, all right? She can have kids like that. And so uh, what we see is that um, we've got this family situation. And let me, let me just, this is a side note. This is free charge. I've, I've heard a lot of people in my um, years as a Christian kind of defend promiscuity or, or maybe justify uh, promiscuity because people in the Bible had, had many, many wives or many spouses. Let me tell you what, the Bible never paints that as a good picture. It's misery. It never points that that's an okay thing. But culturally, that was something that happened. So what we have is this lady, Penina, she's having these children, and she doesn't just let it go with that. She starts chiding Hannah about that. So the picture is Hannah's hurt. She's not able to have children. She's going through that heartache and not able to have children. And then year after year after year, this other woman has children, and year after year, they go and worship at the temple at Shiloh. You can just imagine Penina and those perfect children dressed with perfect clothes. Perfect little outfits embroidered. <laughs> smocking. <laughs> a portrait hanging in there. But now you know, they're all sitting there with her perfect children. And also Hannah. They drag old Hannah along. And Penina won't let it up. She just keeps pounding. There's a beautiful passage in chapter 1. It's verse 9. And I, I looked up the Hebrew. But that's a whole different sermon. But it, it's a passage in the line. It says, and Hannah rose. Hannah stood up. Hannah established herself. Hannah had been pushed to the point where she had had enough. She was tired of looking at herself and she began to look at the only one who could save anybody. And Hannah made a vow. In that culture, we don't make vows here. 
Uh, Jesus tells us, let your yes be yes, but have no doubt. She said, God, if you'll deliver me from this, it's all yours. And God said, I don't that. And so while they were church, Hannah goes down to the temple. She prays so hard and so adamantly, the priest says she's drunk. And he said, no, no, I'm not drunk. I'm just praying hard. He said, well, God, I'll give you. So Hannah has a child, and it's Samuel. And sure enough, after Samuel is weaned, Hannah takes Samuel back to the temple. She takes him to the temple and dedicates him to the Lord. She leaves her three-year-old kid with a, an elderly priest and two sorry, worthless sons that he has named Hopkins and Phoenix. A whole other son. And this is what she says. What we just read is what she proclaimed about the nature of God. See, Hannah's not a Bible expert. She's not some scholar. She's not a priest. She's not anything. But she does come to the point. She said, you know, I don't know a lot, but this much I know. That's what I call this thing. This much I know. This much I know. There's four principles I want to pound out. They're very quick. I know we don't, we don't, uh, I can get stuck in here for a long time. But look, I want to work through these. These are not just words to say. They are principles that you and I can go to when we don't know what to do. When we don't know who is holding us and what's going to happen, we can go to these things. Four things I want to show you. First of all, Hannah says that God is able. He is able. First Samuel 2, 1 through 2. Um, Excuse me, one and two. Hannah says, my heart exalts in the Lord. I want to point out to you that she doesn't exalt in Samuel. She doesn't exalt in the child. She exalts in the Lord who rescues. You understand what changes her? You can be given a lot of things. You can pray for a lot of things. But what changes her is realizing that there is a God who is transcendent, but he reaches in and he reaches down and he saves people. He rescues people from the torture and misery that they're in. She exalts in him, not Samuel, not her kid. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to have to realize that he is not only the giver of the gospel, but he is the gift. It's, it's, it, that's the point of this whole thing. We come in here and we talk a lot about uh, learning things about God. But the whole point is to know God, not just to learn things about him. It's to know him. Second thing, I want to show you verse two. Hannah says, he has no equal. He is holy. Ladies and gentlemen, our God is other than. He does, you can't put, you can't imply that he is anything like you. So you have a picture in your mind of acceptable people, how you want to be. You keep trying to do good and be morally correct so God will like you. God, the news of Christianity is that we're all a piece of crap and he loves us anyway. Right? That, that's the whole point. He's not like us. You can't imp, 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 uh, impose your shortcomings and your prejudices and your, your, your bigotry. You can't put any of that on him. He is above us. He's not like us. He is holy. And I want to tell you that he, that Hannah says, I'm going to tell you what he is. There is no rock like our God. Right? So, real briefly. That is a language of experience from Hannah. That is a language of an encounter with a supernatural, invisible God. There is no rock like our God. Ray Vanderlone, a Hebrew scholar, points out that we in the West learn facts about God. And we think of God in, um, in existential or abstract ways. 
If I were to ask you, uh, give me a one word description of God, you would come up with one word like love or power or truth. But you and I can't draw a picture of love. We can't draw a picture of power. We can't touch. It's not tangible. It's abstract. We're a culture that learns when you stick somebody like me up here that's supposed to know something and we spout out a bunch of stuff and we write it all down. And we learn facts. In Eastern cultures, it's different. Whether it's even here, Native American or Middle East or whatever. God is tangible. That's why you'll see time and time again in Scripture, they say, you know, uh, He is a rock. He's a strong tower. He's sweeter than honey. These are experiential things. To experience God is to encounter Him. You're not able to describe God properly with your words. You're not able to. You and I can't do that. We, we are given His Word so we can understand how to say things about God. It's His Word. That's why it's important, not, not required, but important to put Scripture to memory. See, Scripture to memory starts putting, gets, in, gets inside of it. You're able to recite it. And you say, well, is that, isn't that legalistic? Isn't that, uh, some, you know, isn't that kind of works? Dallas Willard points out that we are not only saved by grace, but we're paralyzed by it. You memorize the scriptures not, not to make God happy, but to help you. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what it's for. Actually, where I worked over the last eight months, I, I had to walk about a quarter of a mile. And I made it a point to memorize the 23rd Psalm. All of us think we know the 23rd Psalm. Like, we kind of know it. You'll say, make you do what you come up with, that and sheep. You would come up with something like Barney and Andy, right? When he was trying to remember the preamble of the Constitution. It would, it would be important. If I found out that I was getting the lines out of, out of kilter. But when I got that passage down in my head and I walked to work, reciting that over and over again, I began to realize that God, the Lord really is my shepherd. And I don't need nothing. See, God's word getting inside you will change you. You will move from fear to faith. Not, not because you did anything. It's because his word matters. That's what it's for. He gives it to us. I was in a little Bible study. They, they, they stopped all Bible studies over there because of the virus. But, but for, for months, I, I met with five other guys. I was the only Protestant. They called me Martin Luther. They're all Catholic. They were men of grace. But one of the things the guys in the Bible study, when they started that hand washing thing, you know, uh, we're all on camera, so they were like, if you didn't wash your hands for your head, they like fired you or something. I mean, everybody watches you. And so, so he would say, you know, why don't we just recite the Lord's Prayer while we wash our hands? And then a certain amount of time. And it was so childish, so second grade. There's something about it. Saying the Lord. The Lord's Prayer. I would encourage you to get away from a busy world. Click off Netflix for just a little while. Turn off one podcast. Put the 23rd Psalm in front of you and just write it out. You need it. He doesn't. Hannah says God is able. Second thing Hannah says that God is at work. 1 Samuel 2, 3 through 8. I got to hustle. 
1 Samuel 2, 3 through 8. Ladies and gentlemen, God did not make the world and spin it and say, good luck. He is actively involved in everything that goes on. There's no aberrant molecules. There's no coincidences. God is using your everyday life. You're going to work and going home. He's using all of that through the process to bring about redemption of this world to himself. It may not be the day that you get your relief from it, but he's he's saving somebody today. I can assure you that something is happening in his kingdom where he works through his good will for his glory. Verse three, Hannah says he knows our heart. Let me read that really quick. In verse three, Hannah says this. He says, she says, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. Say what you want, do what you want, but he knows us. It don't do no good to put on a show about church. It doesn't do any good. He knows our hearts. He doesn't expect anything massive from you. He calls you and I to trust him. That's it. He will do the work in our lives. It is possible to be very busy with religious activity and very fluent in religious language and still be mean. Still remain unchanged. You see it in churches all the time. Jesus warns us in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7 and verse 21 of Matthew. You know, that same old thing, you know, haven't we done these great things? People will shout to Jesus, don't, Lord, did we do a lot of stuff for you? Did we do great works in your name? And he says, I never knew you. I wonder, as Hannah said these words, was she thinking about the fact that every year when they went to church, her rival, as God calls her, Penina, would say, You're no good. You can't have kids. See, Penina was really good at church, right? She knew how to get there. But she was so insecure. She wasn't wasn't able to to see that the Holy God gives kids, not her. Ladies and gentlemen, let me just encourage you to, to be honest before God. Speak honest prayers. You can't impress Him. Be honest with what you say. When your heart is angry and hurt, take it to him. Tell him, tell him exactly how you feel. In the traditional church, it is possible to be affirmed if you speak and act a certain way. Brennan Manning says that. It happens like this. You drift into church. You're kind of looking for God. You have a heart. Hey, you know, I, I kind of would like to know. I want to know if I'm going to have, you have these questions, spiritual questions. And you come into church and, and you kind of look around you and everybody kind of has a church subcultural language and they speak a certain way. God is good all the time. We have all kind of little sayings and we kind of start doing that. But nobody ever says that's not the point. The, the point is for you to follow Jesus. To be a student of the master. That's the point. We exist here for one thing. And that is to make disciples of Jesus. That's it. It's that simple. Every dollar we spend should have at its core. It can't make disciples. Is it going to have an impact for the kingdom? Every, every, every sermon. Every song. Is about making disciples. Students like you and I. Are not expected to be perfect. 
We're expected to trust the Master. That's it. Through the grace of God, He'll open your eyes to who He is. We're called to be disciples. That's it. In verses 4 through 8, Hannah goes through a, a list of how, how God is uh, changing the, um, uh, the, uh, the, the rankings of who is important on earth and who is not. She looks back on all the years that she has suffered through heartache and waiting on the Lord. And God, during that time, was actively rescuing others. Hannah says the powerful are brought down. And the weak are made strong. At God's table, the seating chart has been rearranged. He scribbles through who we think is important. And then he puts who he says is important up there. See, we rank people about angels. We rank people about money. We rank people in what we can see. You see, God looks at the heart. He moves, people, he moves people from a lowly state to that. Jesus said it time and time again, the first to last and last to first. Ladies and gentlemen, there is a pecking order in the world. If you go to my son's chicken house, there are going to be chickens pecking on other chickens. If you go to a, a, a playground, you're going to see the big kids picking on the little kids. And in this world, in the big picture of things, even in our culture, the big ones still eating the little ones. But the kingdom of God, the, the, the powerful are turned upside down. You see, Hannah said, Look, I don't know a lot, but just because a guy is strong don't mean he's going to win. Just because the powerful are in a seat of prominence right now doesn't mean that God can't take them down. Ladies and gentlemen, a God that we serve is powerful and He is a rock and He is able to change situations. He's able to move people. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, He begins it by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom. And I've always taken that to mean, uh, you know, that you had to get like you had to be, you had to get poor or something to make God like you. That's what I thought of it. But that's not what he's saying at all. You see, Jesus is talking to a giant crowd, just like this right here. And, he, and he, he wants that crowd to know that people from every walk of life, they have the religious experts, you have people who are very dedicated and ritualistic, and you have people that are just trying to make it, right? People like me and you just going to work, make a living and, and, and take care of everything. They have no idea what it is to be involved with the church type atmosphere. And Jesus says, blessed are those who are not good at church. That's really what he's saying. Blessed are those that you wouldn't call on to pray on day five days a week. Because there, there are people like that who will be so overjoyed to realize that the kingdom of God is accessible. You see, the first really are last, and the last the first. The way you move forward is have a heart of a student, a heart of a child. Not that you know everything, not that you do anything, but that you are convinced that this Jesus will be a God of justice. He's opened the door, 
That's the scandal of the gospel, is that it's available to people like me and you, right? It's anybody with confidence in Jesus can blunder his way into the kingdom. That can happen today. It doesn't matter about your past. See, if you're a child of God, you know, the Bible says he separates your sin as far as the east is from the west. I've got to believe that. If you want to say, God, don't you remember how I messed that up? He said, I can't recall. I can't pull it out. He forgets it. It's been paid for. He calls you to trust. I can't imagine what kind of person I would be if my three-year-old granddaughter would be worried that I was that she didn't serve me enough, didn't do enough for me, what kind of papa would I be? I mean, well, I'd be a jerk. We place God in the jerk category when we do that. Anna Claire only cares that I love her and I have popsicles. That's it. <laughs> she trusts her papa. You and I are at about a three-year-old level. You, you, you got it? Your papa and popsicles. Things got to get real simple sometimes, but that's the truth. If you don't come to him like that, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. Amen. You won't see it. You won't even get a glimpse of it, he says. You come to him with some kind of agenda, and he's going to say, no. No, child, this is the way it works. I'm your dad. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to take care of you. And I've got this. Take a deep breath and hold my hand. That's the way you come. That's how you enter the kingdom of heaven. Just like a child. Third thing. He is trustworthy. i got to hurry. He is trustworthy. Verses 9 and 10. These two verses proclaim the confidence in God who will come through tomorrow, not just today. Hannah refuses to live in the land of what if. In the kingdom of God, there is no anxiety. I'm going to say it again. In the kingdom of God, there is no anxiety because there is one king, it's him, not you or me. See, our anxiety escalates when we run our kingdom. When our kingdom will not come and our will will not be done, that's when we get anxious. We're worried somehow things are not going to work out the way we have proclaimed that our kingdom should be run. When you and I enter the kingdom of God, this mental and emotional and spiritual um, occurrence that we do constantly, we enter into His control, His authority, and His provision. Mentally and emotionally, we say, Father, you are the king, not me. How this works out is on you. I'm trusting. I'm leaving this. I want you to take it, Father. Hannah says, I don't know a lot, but this much I know. He is able. He is at work and he is trustworthy. God spoke the universe into existence. Charles Stanley asked the question, exactly which problem are you concerned about that God can't have today? Right now, you and I are sitting on a planet spinning at 24,000 miles per hour. It's an out-of-the-way planet in a tiny, little, insignificant solar system, which is one of over 200 billion solar systems inside the Milky Way, which is a single galaxy that is, scientists tell us, and I don't know this, I don't know how they count this, but one of over 200 trillion galaxies that exist 
within a single universe. And the psalmist says that God holds that universe in his hands. Let me ask you again. They, they not, they not moving fast enough in traffic for you? What's happening? What? Okay, something's not going right? He's got it. Everything exists by him, for him, and through him. The purpose of our life is to acknowledge him and know him. I've got to skip a bunch of this stuff. Last part, verse 10. Hannah says, I don't know much, but this much I know. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This word anointed is um, the same word for Messiah. We, 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 we can look at what Bible scholars talk about in this passage. And uh, Justin and I talked a little bit about this. Is Hannah uh, pointing to the prophecy of King David? Maybe. Is, he, is, he, is she pointing to the, to the coming of Jesus? More likely. More likely. His anointed, the Messiah, the one. Hannah says, I don't know much, but God's going to send a Savior. He's sending a Redeemer. He's sending the one. The new birth happens to you and I when we recognize that Jesus of Nazareth is the one. He is the anointed, the Messiah, the one to come. There is no other. The beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, how many things you got to say about him. He is the one. There's no other point. This is not about a religion. It's not about a denomination. It's not about a church. It's about one person, Jesus. That's it. There is no other reason for us to exist except to exalt the one, Jesus of Nazareth. When Peter was asked by Jesus, who do people say that I am? He said, well, you know, a lot of people got ideas about who you are. And then Jesus says, who do you say I am? And you know the story. Peter said, God the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh is much and not reveal this to you. Blessed are you, Simon Barjohn. I think I got it backwards. Yeah. My Father in heaven revealed it to you. If you recognize that Jesus is the one, he is the one. He's, he's the rock. He's everything. Last thing I want to point out to you, we'll close. Hannah says, I don't know much, but this is, this is what I know. He is hidden. I want to read this verse to you. After everything that's gone on, after everything that's happened, after Hannah has gone with this crazy, weird family of hers, back to Shiloh to the temple and she's given her only son, little Samuel, to two sorry priests named Hopkins and an old man named Eli. Everything that she just did, we're reciting her prayers. That's how important this is. It's in scripture. This is what it says. After Hannah's done all of this, it says, then Elkanah, this is God, Mr. Second Wife, right? Mr. I gotta have somebody else. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Elijah Priest. It's 
Scripture is so good. I think the whole point is this. When Hannah went back home, it was the same weird marriage she left. It was the same broken dishwasher. It was the same medical bill on the counter that you can't figure out is interesting. It's the same struggles that you go through, the same addiction. It's the same. But something was different than that. She had to have this long thing, but she understood that God is hidden in you every day. When you're up close, you can't see when you're too close to the pain, you cannot see Him. He is hidden. He works things out in our everyday life at the ground level. At the ground level, Jesus is invisible. I know that's a shock to you. Even Paul says Jesus is invisible. In his letter to a young evangelist by the name of Timothy, he says this, thing, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to see to save sinners, of which I am the foremost. But I will seek mercy for this reason, because in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience to those who believe in him for eternal life. And then he says who Jesus is. He says, the king of ages, immortal, <laughs> invisible, the only God, the him to be honored more forever and ever. Amen. I, I really believe this, that God sometimes opens the door of certain people to let them see vision or something, a vision or something. But if you run around telling me you're seeing Jesus all the time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lie to you and say, oh, praise the Lord. I mean, I'm going to lie to you. But, but I don't believe you, right? I, I'm not with you on that. It's just too weird. I mean, I'm sure he does. I know in certain times. But guys, I want to remind you, he gives you himself inside of you. That's, Jesus said it's better if you don't see me. I'm sending the help. Ladies and gentlemen, we, we are indwelled by the same spirit that raised Christ in the I want to ask my guys to come forward. And uh, I want to close with this. I uh, going on a little bit long, but I, I, I want to invite you. I always want to give people a chance to respond to the truth that they've heard. Um, there's some of you that have been praying constantly for lost family members. And you don't see any difference. Like you might even see them slow up cussing a little bit, but they don't. Right? It seems like nothing's happening. And you spend time begging God to say, I want to remind you that God's here. And He isn't working. Maybe today is not the day for your family, but I can assure you, He's saving somebody today. You serve, you give. You, you, you write a check or give to an out-of-way church like this. It just seems so random. You don't see anything happen. He's here. He, you can't see him. 
and he is working in you. And he's saying somebody somewhere. You guys come every Thursday night. Every Thursday night. Addiction can hold people so hard. And you wonder, you can't see anything. But he, he, he's saying something. Has this much I know? He's saying something. There, there are people here. I, I, I know this because I know we. There are people here today, right now. It's been a long time. Since you pressed into the rock that we know is Jesus. It's been a long time since you've gotten close enough to feel the, the, the weight and the hard bread of this immovable God that we call Jesus. He's the unmoved mover. See, I'm inviting you today. You can do it in your seat. You can come forward and pray. You can do it when you get in your car. But I'm inviting you today to revisit the invisible God. final song. Everybody presumes to know what's going to happen. But we don't. You're in charge. Heavenly Father, we are, we are weak. We are hypocritical. We are duplicity. And right now, I'm wondering if I can even Believe these words of heaven next time I face you on the This much I know. You're able. You're working. You are trustworthy in the world. I can't see you without you there. Father, save someone. Have someone make a step For the first time, they understood it's about Jesus. It's about trusting that Jesus came from heaven to Calvary. It's about becoming a student of Jesus. That we would see him so lifted up and exalted that, that we would rearrange everything in our life to prioritize following him.
chorus, uh, the song says, the cross says that I'm not a failure. And that we must first understand the reality that the cross happened because I'm a failure. The cross happened because I'm inadequate. The way that I'm not a failure is because through Jesus' death on the cross, even though I am a failure, God looks at me and sees the righteousness of Christ. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 says, For consider your calling brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The good news for all of us, and I think my good news, is that God chose us. If you're a believer, God chose you because you're at so that in your salvation and in your life, when when Russ preaches a sermon, it's not longer about how Russ did an amazing job and how he read the scriptures and talked about it. It's about how God chose to use a vessel like Russ to, to communicate his word to us. No offense, Russ, I love you. But it's all about God's glory. And so in your life, in your salvation, you're saved by grace. And as we live our lives, we work by grace for the glory of Christ. And then as we enter heaven, we're rewarded by grace for the glory of Christ. It's all about Jesus. We are inadequate sinners who are saved for the glory of Jesus. Well, I thank you so much for Christ. And God, remind us all constantly of the reality that, that we are inadequate. There's nothing that any of us could have ever done to bring about our salvation, to make us right with you. And there's nothing that we can do now um, to, to, to do what we should. Your word says that our righteous works are like filthy rags before you. But God, in great love for us, you chose us. You loved us anyways. I got that as we go now, you would use each other still with joy and confidence. Like, yeah, I'm inadequate, but in my inadequacy, in my weakness, God is strong and the Spirit fuels me. So as we go, it fills with joy, fills with boldness, and with urgency to live for the glory of Christ because He's worth it.